0: At Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelyans get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelyans were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture shout out to the keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends you can learn more about those conversations about those amazing friends by visiting them online at keeley companies
1: welcome to the live inspired podcast with john o'leary john is the number one national best-selling author of the book on fire he's a world-class inspirational speaker and he's the host of the live inspired podcast John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary.
0: Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspire podcast with John O'Leary. We've got a treat for you today. You're going to need a, let me just give you the list. You ready? Get your pencils in hand, pieces of paper, good. You'll need a pair of running shoes. You will need a set of Kleenex, maybe even an entire box because this is going to get a little bit emotional. You may need uh, your, your favorite country's flag to celebrate the Olympics, but the medal we'll be pursuing in this race is not one of achievement ultimately, but one of profound love and acceptance and of what it looks like to finish strong together. Today's guest has arguably become the most famous Olympian ever to finish last in an Olympic race. At the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, Derek Redmond, that's today's guest, was among the favorites to win the 400 semifinal. As he passed the 250 mark, more than halfway through, in first place, the unthinkable happened. He tore his hamstring. He began grabbing his leg. He began hobbling forward. He fell to the floor. And ultimately, Derek seemed like he was going to give up in a fit of agony. And yet, determined to finish the race strong, he began to stumble toward the finish line. He pulled himself up and continued to hop forward, hobble forward, stagger forward. And then he fell again. Each time he fell, Olympic officials would come over to try to take him off the course. Take him onto a stretcher. Get him out of the stadium. Let the real athletes compete. And each time Derek pushed them back, he continued to push them back until finally an arm came around him that he could no longer push away. It was the love and the arm and the touch of a father. My friends, in what is without a doubt my favorite video ever of any Olympics that I've ever seen, it's the story of an athlete expected to finish first, finishing last but crossing the finish line, maimed and weeping and injured and hobbled and radically victorious in the arms and the clutch of his father. What a story. A broken child finishing strong with the father's love. That will play, I think, during the Olympics, but it's going to play well also during our lives. Get ready for Derek to describe the tumultuous journey that led to that iconic moment in the 1992 Olympics, as well as lessons that he's learned in perseverance and teamwork, self-belief and life. This conversation with my new friend, Derek Redman, is going to leave you inspired to not only never give up, but also to finish strong and utilize the love of a father going forward. So my friends, without further ado, get ready to run the good race with my friend and now yours. His name is Derek Redmond. Derek, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary.
1: Thanks very much. It's great to be here.
0: Oh, man, I feel like I'm already with a friend. So uh, this is going to be an awesome conversation with a guy that I've, I've always looked up to. As long as I've been tracking sports, I've been following you, Derek. So we're going to talk about Barcelona. We'll talk about your dad. We'll talk about this global moment that you had. But before that, I want to talk about growing up. Uh, mm-hmm. Sounds like you might have a little bit of an accent that is not, uh, it's not from Missouri here in the, in the middle part of the <laughs> Where are you from, man?
1: Yeah, so I'm not from Missouri. Uh, in fact, I'm not from your side of the pond. Um, I'm an <laughs> English guy I'm from the United Kingdom. Based in the Midlands, I now live in uh, Northampton, which is about an hour north of London. Um, and I was born about 15 minutes away from, uh, from from where I'm living now.
0: Talk about your family growing up.
1: Family's great. So I have one sister who's two years older than me. Uh, obviously, mum and dad very close, tight family unit. We are quite small. There is only the four of us in that in, in in that unit. When I came into this world, my dad was a truck driver, so he spent quite a lot of time away because he it meant him driving into Europe and and places. So he you know there was times that he was away for days at a time. So mum kind of brought us up. Uh, very strict West Indian parents they were part of the Windrush generation I'm sure you're aware of uh in the 40s and well, a bit later I think it was 40s yeah. and 50s we had a lot of people from the Caribbean from the West Indies coming over to the United Kingdom uh to to seek a better life basically um and both my mum and dad were part of that and interesting enough they were both born in Trinidad in Trinidad and Tobago but they didn't meet each other until they both came to the UK mm-hmm. uh which is you know which is quite interesting. Great upbringing. Um, very supportive. I got into my first track club when I was seven and my dad was there from day one and he was there right to the end. Interestingly enough, my sister who really couldn't stand sport and really didn't like track and field. And if my dad was here, he would agree with this a hundred percent. My sister had more talent than I did, but she just didn't like the sport. Used to get dragged along to track meets as a youngster and just had to sit and watch and just had no interest.
0: Was the interest yours or your father's or a little bit of both?
1: It was mine, purely mine, and I just loved running and jumping, and I wanted, I was, you know, relatively uh, quick at elementary school, and I just wanted to run and just, you know, give it a go, and uh, we had an elementary school sports day, which I won my races, and I wanted to race the older kids, and first of all, the teachers wouldn't let me, then they did, and I won that race, and when we were given all our little medals and certificates and prizes, a track athlete from the local club where I lived at the time, came and gave a few words, you know, said a few words and talked about the local club. And I just said to my mum and dad, can I go? And they said, "Yeah." And my dad just took me along. The one thing that became very apparent with my dad, he didn't mind taking time out to take me and and spend time with me there. The only thing he asked of me is that I would give it 100%. He didn't want me to waste my Mm. time, his time or the coach's time. And if I wanted to stop, then stop. But if you don't, and you're going to do it, give it 100%. And that was something that he was, you know, adamant with.
0: I've read, right, Derek, that you began with the 100. You were extraordinarily gifted at it, then the 200. And then at age 15, you stumbled accidentally into what I would consider the hardest race of them all, which is the 400. Talk Absolutely. talk about how you, uh, how you ended up doing the 400.
1: Yes, spot on. So as I say, when I joined, I was pretty quick and I ran the 100s and 200s pretty much from the age of 7 till the age of like 14 i ran the 100 and finished third uh, for a club meet uh, i ran the 200 and finished third on the same day and the young guy uh, for my you know in our age group who was supposed to run the 400 he, he didn't show up to this day i don't know why it was a typical uh, club meet where eight points for a win one point for eighth so even if you walked around and got eight, uh, you know got a point that could help at the end of the day when all your points were added up and the team with the most points. So the um, team manager was desperate for someone to run the 400. And then my dad said, look, why don't you give it a go, Derek? And in a joking way, he said, what have you got to lose besides another race? That's the worst (laughs) that can happen. And um, I said, okay, I had no idea how to run the 400s. I remember us going to the warm-up field and my dad saying, right, sprint from there to there. And I did. And he went, I reckon that's a bit quick, do it again. And I went a bit too slow and went, right, For the first half of the race, go in between those two and then just go for it, just hang in. Uh, Which basically what I did, I ended up winning the race and breaking the area uh, age group record. But for me, it wasn't about the times, it was the fact that I won a race. And and, and for a young 15-year-old, that was more of interest that I finished first. Uh, And that's what made me then at the next club meet, run the 100, the 200 and the 400. And at the end of the year, end of that season, I decided that I was going to switch from ones and twos to the fours. And as you rightly said, the real culture shock came in the training for 400 as opposed oh. to training for the 100 and the 200.
0: Some of our listeners and viewers are going to know everything in the world about the 100, 200, 400, et cetera. Many will not though. So for those who are coming in for the first time, they haven't seen an Olympic since the last summit was live, describe what the 400 is and why it is so difficult. The 400 is pain (laughs) so so basically
1: just in in simple terms the 100 and the 200 you can pretty much run flat out so the human body so i've been told can run round about 230 meters flat out before it begins to naturally decelerate so you can't sprint a 400 meter race so it's what's known as a controlled sprint you have to pace it correctly and that's where the difficulty lies The second fact about the 400, you will run out of oxygen in your blood cells, which creates lactic acid. And that is the demons. That is the the real horrible, the nemesis of a 400 meter race. So whether you are a a 400 meter runner that goes out slow and then tries to finish strong or you go out really quick and you kind of hang on you will eventually fill up with lactic acid and it's a horrible acid that forms in the legs and it makes your legs really heavy your stride your stride length will shorten and it's not a great place to be however it will happen if you run a 400 correctly Mm -hmm. so part of the problem with training for a 400 is you have to train in that state so you have to get yourself to a state where you have developed lactic acid in your muscles and then you start training and it's a you know it's, it's a it's a horrible thing it takes a while to get over it you know people can be fooled into thinking that when they watch a 400 meter race with a michael johnson or whoever in the race that as he's pulling away he's accelerating actually the truth of the matter he's slowing down slower than the opposition Interesting. so with 60 70 80 meters to go you actually don't have anything less. It is about relaxing and maintaining and trying not to slow down any quicker than you are naturally going to slow down. It's a lot more technical than people give it credit for.
0: 1984, you had almost an opportunity to join us here in uh, the United States in LA. You just missed out qualifying. In 85, you set what I think at the time was the, the, the British record for yes. the 400.
1: 4482 correct. I didn't expect to do that. And there's a bit of a story with that. I, it was my first, they're called Diamond League meetings now. They were called Golden League meetings when I was competing. And um, it was my first ever Golden League. And I That's turned good. up a couple of days prior to it. And my agent got me there early and I'm soaking up the atmosphere. But I had that, that feeling of getting a bit of a fever and, you know, the sore throat when you swallow and, the, the, the you know, the congestion and the coughing and sneezing and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, it kind of got worse. And by the time the race, come, uh, the meet come around, I've got a thumping headache and all the usual symptoms. I remember going down to the track and as I'm starting to warm up, I said to another English athlete who was in the same event, a bit more experienced than me, picked up a silver medal at the 84 games. And I said, Chris, I'm not feeling good, mate. I really don't feel well. I'm thinking of pulling out. And he said, you can't pull out. You can't pull out. And the agent, my agent who'd got me the, the race was quite a tough guy. And, you know, he said it, as he said, he go, and his name was Andy. Andy Norman said, if Andy, if you pull out, Andy's going to kill you. You'll never get a race in Europe again. That will be it. Your career just about to be done. And he said to me, you've signed your contract, haven't you? I said, yeah. He goes, did you read it? I said, of course I didn't read it. Who reads the contract? I'm 19 years old, Chris. I'm not going to read my contract. And he said, he said, well, look, in it will state that as long as you run 50% or more of the distance and you pull up, get injured or whatever, they'll pay you. So he says, my only advice would be, would be to run 200, maybe 230 meters and then fake an injury, pull out. You haven't had to run the whole race and he's happy and you get paid. So I said, you know what? Fantastic. So I didn't even warm up properly. Come to the race, on your mask, I go. And I, you know, I literally fell out the blocks and I ran around the first bend and I'm running down the back straight. And all I'm thinking is, pull out at 200 no pull out at about 230 make sure it's past 200 so no one can can you know uh, you know criticize that you haven't run half the distance so I got to 200 and in a 400 with the stagger you can sense if people are around you and I couldn't really sense much and I'd actually gone past the person on the outside of me so I thought I'll go to 250 and then pull out so on that top bend that final turn that's when the staggers unwind and you begin to see where you are in the race. And I'm running that turn and I'm still in the front. So I thought, you know what, go to 300. So I get to 300. We're now into the home straight and where you are is where you are. And I was in front. And the thought that went through my mind was go to 350 and then pull out. So I I carried on to 350 and the crowd's all clapping. And I got to 350 and I thought, oh, do you know what? Just finished the damn race. So (laughs) I carried on, went over the line. The clock stopped at 44 and I'd never run under 45 then, and I thought, oh, clocks are broken, and it stopped at 44.82, and I remember my agent being in the middle saying, you've just won, you've broken the British record, oh, fantastic, and I was, you know, I was feeling all right at this stage, and he said, go on a victory lap, and I said, what's one of them? I've never done a victory lap, just go <laughs> around and cheer and wave, so I kind of jogged, I'm on my victory lap, and the crowd's going wild, and it's a stadium record, and I broke the British record, and I got maybe a third the way around on this victory lap, I remember going, my headache's gone. I can breathe. My throat hurts. And then the minute I thought about it, within five seconds, all the feelings came back again. And I just, oh, went. it was like hitting a wall. Like I went through an illness, invisible wall, and everything just came back. And I just felt dizzy, lightheaded, and I just cut across the field to the other side, waved as I came down the home straight. And then when I found a a dark place in the changing room just to lie down. Um, So the weirdest strangest situation because it was the last thing i expected to break a british record when i was feeling feeling so bad so um, to this day i don't know how or why that happened
0: well what's so ironic about it is you are so committed to outcomes like i've just i followed your success and when you seek something you run through it and you run through the pain so to hear you at the world record this this time that you achieve this incredible accomplishment You weren't seeking it, actually. You were seeking just the next 50 meters, just 50 meters. Yeah, Yeah,
1: absolutely. And it's quite funny because with what I do for a living now speaking, sometimes I say, you know, a lot of times I say that when we have a goal or an aim, a dream, a target, whatever, you can't take just one step to it. You know, it's it could be lots of little steps. And in a 400, there could be 400 steps you know each meter might be it could be 40 every 10 meters it could be 50 you know and you sometimes have to break these things down into small controllable chunks and it's a bit like climbing a mountain you know you've got this huge mountain that you want to climb and you could be climbing and climbing and climbing and climbing away and people you know we're of people and look up and someone says oh god look how far we've still got to go we've been going for ages my response is yeah but turn around and look how far you've come Mm -hmm. and that is worth sometimes celebrating and that's turning around and seeing how far you've actually come could be the thing that gives you the momentum and the, and the energy and the enthusiasm uh, and the zest to keep on moving forward. And, you know, so, yeah, you know, I do believe that sometimes it it is a case of breaking these things down into segments and that's all I concentrated on was each 50. Well, once I got to the 200, it was just 50 meters. Uh, And the next thing I know, I'm running over the line in, in a new British record.
0: Derek, you're talking about taking the next step and the, the next step and the next step and training is brutal, but you have a goal in mind. You know what the summit looks like and you want to make it into the Olympics. In 1988, you do, but you don't actually race in the Olympics. So I, I want you, before we talk about your most famous race in 92, what many people don't know is you, you had a painful loss in 88. Would you talk about that?
1: 88, Seoul Olympics, finally make it to my you know first Olympic Games. I think I was ranked three or four in the world over 400 great Britain are expected to win a silver medal in the, in, in, the relay in a four by you know, in a mile relay. And I'm expected to make the final and possibly medal in the individual got the likes of Steve Lewis, Danny Everett, um, two great friends of mine, two of the hot favorites, but I'm also in the mix there for, you know, possibly picking up a, a, a medal and warming up for the first round. Uh, I'd had a few Achilles tendon problems uh, leading up to the games on the warm-up track warming up for the heats for the first round the prelims of the of the quarter mile uh, I snapped an Achilles tendon and that pretty much put put pay to to that and we maybe had hour and 20 minutes was you know to go before the first round and I remember being on that warm-up track and being looked at and saying to the medical staff and my coach was there saying just give me a pain injection just put it and the doctors and people were saying look it won't last that long I said well put it in a syringe and I'll put it in myself when I get out on I, mean, I was just desperate and yeah. obviously that was never going to happen that was it my, my dad was in the stadium and word got to him so he came to the warm-up track and I was absolutely devastated that I didn't oh. even step Onto the track in in Seoul and contests the 400. And I remember watching my heat, and there was my empty lane. And the gun goes, and right up until the point, even though I knew I wasn't on the track, the other seven athletes were there. And all the time when they were standing behind their blocks and I'm watching, I'm thinking, I could still get there. I could still get there. Even when it's on your marks, get set. I was thinking, there's a chance. And then as soon as that gun went, that's when it was like, closure. The curtain came down, and I knew. It was all over. My first Olympics wasn't a great experience. And actually the next two seasons after that, nearly two and a half seasons, I had, I think, maybe seven surgeries uh, on Achilles tendons. In total, I think I've had 11, six mm-hmm. on one on five on the other. But yeah, that was a tough two and a half years. And I was pretty much out from 88 till 91.
0: You mentioned you're outside of the stadium, you're outside where this heat is about to take place and your father comes out. Do you yeah. remember at all what he said to you back then?
1: Yeah, well, he, he met me on the warm-up track. So it it's still maybe an hour before the actual race. And he came out onto the warm-up track and, you know, and we hugged and he, you know, he said, look, don't worry, we'll get this right and we'll be back. Um... Uh, and, and the funny stories, my my dad, um, very successful in business, he had what we say over here the gift of the gab. He was able to talk, and you know, he made well. He was a salesman for a while, made a great salesman. He actually said, "Look, come on, let's go and you know find somewhere quiet." And he had more accreditation and access to areas that even I couldn't get to as a as a as a, as, as an athlete. And um, we will. He took me to this area to 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 sit down, a bit quiet, away from the press and everybody. I'd done all the interviews and goodness knows what. And the guy on the door said, You can't come in here. My dad's like, Oh, don't worry, is me. Ah, oh, Jim, yes, your boy, he can come in. I'm like, typical my daddies, get to be friends, with everybody. And we went into this little private canteen area and we sat down and just spoke about the future and just said, look, let's get this sorted, let's you know, get ourselves you know back into shape. He was in the process of selling one of his businesses anyway. Uh, and he said, Look, let's get this this, this acquisition out of the way. Um, he said, I'll tell you now they've agreed to sponsor you. So, you know, that's good. And we can, we can start to put a new plan together. So he was, you know, really cool, really good. Uh, and, and and very supportive, which if you ever met my old man or, or knew him, it was typical my dad.
0: Mm-hmm. So he's talking about the future and I, I don't want to spend a lot of time hovering in 91, but you and your three colleagues had incredible success in 1991. Yeah. Um, the, the Americans, I happen to be one. I think we had a 56 year consecutive win streak in the four x 400. And tragically, in 1991, you and your colleagues dethroned us. <laughs> we so, did. It was, yeah, it was, it was
1: a great race. Four by four, World Champs 91. I'll quickly skip over it because we don't want to lose listeners
0: as we talk. Uh, you already that. lost my father, who, who's <laughs> furious right now as you turn off, turn off the phone.
1: Yeah, I mean that was great. I mean that was another milestone in not only my life as an athlete but my life in what I do now. So you know we made the final. The US were the favourites, as to be expected. They were the reigning world champions. We was expected to win the silver. We were the reigning world silver medalists. You know we picked up Olympic silver. We was always uh, the bridesmaid, never the bride. Let's uh, let's put it in that way. And um, we had four good athletes, four world class athletes in our team, which actually made a real change rather than having two or three great athletes and a fourth person we had four world-class athletes
0: and right. is it is it important that in a relay that you actually like the guys you run with
1: it's not just a case of liking them but it's that you know them and understand them that's really important because the problem with something like the relay you've got to remember whether it's a four by one or a four by four that team is made up of the fastest four guys in your country over that distance one word to explain them is your rival's because you spend the majority of the time training wow. to kick each other's butts. And we recognized that back in 1984, where we won a silver. I wasn't in a team, but the guys won a silver in LA and from 84, those guys and I was on the outskirts of that team. I was a top junior and hovering on a couple of B uh, sort of uh, senior relay teams said, look guys, we need to spend some time with each other. Um, and kind of get to know and understand each other because we all do our individual events, win, lose, or draw with them. We're all thrusted together at major championships and expected to perform as if, as if we've been training with each other's for years. Right. And we started having unofficial training squads where we would all train together and all decide on a session all the way through the winter. And our coaches and advisors saying, Oh, you don't want to, you know, show the, these guys your hands. Cause you're going to be competing against them. Well, and our attitude was look, Whoever's going to win is going to win us trying to hide three months of training. Isn't going to make a blind bit of difference in reality, but what is going to make a difference is if we spend some time together, get to know and understand each other, learn that belief, faith, trust, respect in each other that you need in team sport, that's going to help us in the relay. And it did in 91 because the team managers picked an order and we got together. This was the night before the race. They picked the order after the the prelims because it was it was prelims and then straight final and we said we don't think that's the right order and a conversation took place and it started with one athlete who was due to run the second leg and he felt he was a man for the last leg and we said if we can get him in a certain position on the last leg we've got a chance so we said well let's assume he's gonna there be the last leg how are the rest of us gonna look at that and how can we get him and that started a conversation and about Midnight, one o'clock, we're in the team manager's room, hotel room, the six of us, because the two uh, reserves are there as well, arguing that we want to change the order. And they didn't want to change the order. And the order that we were changing to meant that in some cases, athletes hadn't run that leg before, me being one of them. And two, we hadn't actually practiced relay changeovers because we knew we wouldn't actually be receiving or handing a baton over. So it was a huge risk. And we took the risk because we had the faith, belief in each other. And it wasn't by much, um, but it was enough to give us the gold and and, and you guys the, the silver. Um, <laughs> and and uh, sadly, ever since every race, you guys have won again. <laughs> but we did something that was different and we dared to be a bit different. And it it, it worked.
0: So huge success in 91. Congratulations. The 92, again. the dream again, Olympics. And yeah. it's yours. You walk in with your country and you get ready for the races. I think you win the first heat. You have the fastest time through the second yeah. And now you're in the semifinals and this is the moment in time that's going to make you globally known, not only in 1992, but here we are decades later and it's yeah. still a known story. So I'd like you to just slowly jog us through that race.
1: Yeah. Uh, as you say, one of the first two rounds, Uh the interesting thing about the first two rounds is I hadn't yet really pushed myself. I'd done enough to qualify because there's no point in breaking the world record in in the, in the in the prelims because all that does is get you into the second round um so i i, I had i had run well within myself for the first two rounds again coming off of a, a bit of a, a patchy period with uh, injury problems and still having to be very careful with my achilles tendons and if you ever look at a picture or see the race you'll see one of my achilles tendons is still strapped up um so it come to the semi-final uh, there's two semis, first four in each to go through. Um, my biggest rival in there is uh, my good friend Steve Lewis and uh, another guy, Roberto Hernandez, but I've already beat him in, in one of the prelims. So as far as I was concerned, he was the only other person that was, but Steve was my only real competition. I was also now going to run a harder race and, and run a bit quicker. Um, and, yep. Yeah. Warm up's great everything's great my mind's right everything's all good and uh the gun goes I get the fastest reaction out of all eight of us in the uh when the gun goes off and I run the first sort of 80 90 meters how I break it down and um things are great as I'm going into the uh back straight I normally as my coach refers to it put the burners on and if you imagine a rocket and the burn is going on and for about 30 meters I accelerate into the back straight and then the burners go off and I freewheel for the next 170, 180 meters, not slowing down, but just holding that speed. And I was going that quick. I decided not to put the burners on. I thought, just keep at this speed and just freewheel until the next point where I would then, you know, make the change. And as I'm just freewheeling down the back straight, I'm catching the guys on the outside. I can't see the guys on the inside. And I just hear this funny pop. Um, And my first thought was it was something in the crowd. And if you can hear something so specific, you're obviously not Mm concentrating. And I remember hearing a pop and I actually said to myself, come on Redmond, concentrate, because I'm thinking it's something in the crowd. And I carried on running for maybe two or three more strides. And then two, three strides later, I felt this wrench in my leg and the most painful thing. And I just, I knew instantly what it was, you know, it's a hamstring one. And at that point when you're, so my back straight 100, is run at about 10.2 pace for the for the hundred you've got to understand that's because it's a rolling start so i crossed that start line if you like at speed but it's about 10.2 so i'm running pretty quick so to be running at that speed and then you pull your hamstring, the first thing you want to do is stop and i just grab the back of my leg i know what it is and i just want to stop and i know what it is instantly and i am just mortified I am absolutely, I don't want to use any bad language, but I am mortified. I am just throwing my head back in agony and in disappointment. And I hit the deck and I'm slap the deck and I'm just, oh, why me? And I just lose it for a few seconds. Cannot believe this is happening again, especially when I was in such good shape.
0: Eric, were you, were you on the ground? And Because yeah. the video is so telling. Were you on the ground, hitting the ground and in agony, emotionally, physically, or both? Both. Both. 100% both.
1: I'll be honest with you, it was very painful, but I would say the emotions were possibly more apparent, and mm-hmm. I could feel that more than I could the pain.
0: You pulled but yourself I- up, though, and you kept on haltingly and awkwardly hobbling and hopping your way forward. Wh- wh- why not just stay on the ground?
1: Well, the first thing that went through my mind after you know a few seconds, of, and it was only seconds, the first thing that went through my mind was it was the first four to qualify. And when I kind of looked up at the track, the athletes were still running. Yeah. They maybe had 130, 140 meters to go. And the initial thought was if I get up now and start running, I'll catch them and still qualify. And that's what got me from the ground to my feet. And oh, I man. start hobbling and then it's now more pain and, 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 uh, and, and I can feel, and I'm just frustrated and I'm, desperate at the end of the day and i'm hobbling towards the 200 meter mark and i remember kind of looking across the track to see if i was gaining on these guys they've obviously finished they've been interviewed you know they've had a shower their hair's dry i mean the race is over and and then my mindset changed from wanting to qualify because again that's been laid to rest i can't do anything about that and then the next thought that instantly went through my mind is i need to finish this race. Um, not for anybody else, for me. And the reason I needed to finish that race is because I had to live with myself for the rest of my life. And I felt I could live with finishing eighth and being knocked out in the semifinal.
0: Yes.
1: But I didn't want to be beaten by the Olympics again because I'd been beaten by the Olympics in in 88. And and that was the reason why I I carried on. I also felt, I remember thinking, it would be a great base to, to work towards... The '96 uh, Olympics, which were been held in Atlanta, you know, you know, I got through to the semi-final. Right, the next one is the final. Um, But if I didn't do that, I had no solid foundations to work on, physically or mentally. And that's why I carried on. And there was some medical staff and officials who were trying to stop me, thinking, "What's this crazy guy doing?" And I, it, I kind of hobbled around the fir- final turn, and by this time, I sort of staggered out of my lane. And then the last thing I expect to see over my left shoulder, I could sense this person coming towards me in my peripheral vision. And at the point I didn't know who it was and they were getting closer and closer. And as I had already done with other officials, I kind of fended them off and, you know, shooed them away. So to speak, I heard my dad's voice and Mm -hmm. my dad's got a very distinctive voice. Sounds like Barry White, (laughs) very deep Uh, And I just heard him say, Derek, it's me. It's me. You don't need to do this. And I remember just kind of looking. Now, a sane, normal Derek Redmond would have said, what on earth are you doing here?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, just to remind our listeners uh, who have somehow not seen, you know, it's been seen by hundreds of millions around the world, but maybe one person listening (laughs) or watching hasn't. There's 65,000 people cheering and watching this from the stands in Barcelona. There's millions or billions more at home watching from the comfort of their own couch. And there's this hobbled athlete who's broken down, who should get off the track. And the officials are trying to usher him quickly off the track. Yeah. And then there's this larger figure who approaches from behind and it's your dad. Yeah. You don't have to do this.
1: Yeah. And, and I, I remember just turning to him. And the first thing I said was, he said to me, Derek, you don't need to do this. You don't need to do this. And I just said, "I oh, don't just get me back into lane five. And I'm shouting and I'm cursing at my dad to get me into lane five. And, you know, the one thing I do want to make clear with everybody that's listening, it is the first and last time I've ever been ever to shout and curse at my dad and get away with it. Um, <laughs> that would have never happened in any other uh, situation. And he just said, OK, OK, I'll get you back into lane five and we'll finish this together. And that's all he said to me. And, and then he managed to get me from a hobble to a walk, which wasn't a great deal of difference in speed, but in effort and, and sort of um, pressure being used on my hamstring was, was was quite a lot. The reason he originally came on was to stop me because we had the relay in six, seven days' time, however many days' time. And my dad, who was sitting next to my coach, they knew the game. They knew it was possibly a hamstring um, could have been cramp it could have been a slight strain it could be you know and it, it, my dad's thought was don't make it worse because you still got a second bite at an olympic uh, awesome. medal cherry if you like um you got a second bite of the cherry and that was his original thing but once he had seen that i wanted to finish he just aided me and when he kind of got me down to a, a hob or walk and yeah i had my arm around him and his arm around me that's for me when all the emotions came out and again i'll be honest with you i really didn't noticed the crowd didn't hear them I just needed to get to the finish line um and as I approached the line we uh, you know I did and my dad kind of acknowledged the crowd and I remember him patting me on the back and I just walked across and then I just lost it again and we ended up heading off into one of the medical rooms
0: but, so I'm, I'm not sure if I'm emotional from your voice telling that story or from the video playing in my mind right now but you mentioned mentioned when your dad put his arm around you and you began going from the hobble to the walk that that's when the emotion. Yeah. Started. Why? What, what was the emotion you were feeling right then? What, what were the, tears uh, um,
1: well, why did it happen? First of all, I think because my dad was next to me and he was someone I could be me with. I could relax. I could be me. And as I said, I forgot about everything else of where I was. the, tens of thousands that were watching and the millions that were watching on, you know, live and the millions that were watching on TV. I forgot about all them and it was just me and my dad and I could be me in front of my dad. There was no apps. There was no game to play. And I think because of that, I was able just to be me, which was at that point, totally gutted, devastated, upset, obviously. And I just broke down. Um, And you know, that those emotions were of that frustration, upset, um disappointment annoyance all of those things wrapped into one and yeah the pain but that that was that was last on the on the list if you wanted to it was all of the other things you know all the commitment the time the effort everything you've been through kind of flashes back and it was it was that that was upsetting and I wasn't gonna win an olympic medal because i was going to win a medal hopefully the gold possibly the silver without doubt it would have been at least a bronze um i know that in my heart of hearts whether people believe that or not that's down to them but i can only go on my own feeling and what i'd done and what i felt i was able to do and it didn't happen one of the things that happens, and if you ask any Olympic medalist, and I'm sure you've you, you've had the pleasure of interviewing medalists, and if you ask them what's that feeling on a rostrum uh, or a medalist, World, Olympic, Commonwealth, Europeans, because I've had it, the first emotion is one of relief. And if you don't believe that, have a look at some footage of an athlete, swimmer, whatever, having their medal placed around their neck. The first thing is that they do is they look at it and then they go, Woof. relief. Yeah. We've done it it's worked everything that we've talked about everything that we've gambled the diet the training the weights the, the whatever it is the circuits the, the track sessions this everything that you've done and it's all done hoping that you get it right on the day so when you finally get that medal around your neck it's there and it's relief That's and and i had the dead opposite of that because i still had all the emotions of all the work that i'd done but it hadn't it hadn't worked. Uh, and those were the kind of emotions that were that were coming out as, a, as, as I went over the line.
0: And yet, oddly enough, as loud as the crowd was, 65,000 or so on their feet for the winner of that heat, they were far louder as uh, a father and a son hobbled over the finish line.
1: It's one of those things, isn't it? Steve Lewis won the, the semi in 44-5-0. That's what people were expecting. They're expecting these superhuman athletes to run these superhuman times, which Steve did, looking sublime and easy and, you know, in control, that's out of the reach of 99.9% of the people in the stadium and, and watching. But yes. what So they can appreciate that and they will applaud accordingly. But what they can understand and accept and relate to is something failure is is somebody who hasn't done what they wanted to and they are being helped to do what they want to do by someone else people can relate to that a lot more than they can to someone being superhuman and i think that's and also the fact that this person hadn't given up and and these are things that people can feel in their hearts of hearts and i think that's why it's been receiving away because it could have gone either way what an idiot or what a hero for me i'm <laughs> glad it was the, the you know the latter and as you say it completely changed it completely changed my you know my life and had i won the gold i don't think i'd be globally as known as 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 i had with you know with what happened and you ask most people who won the final most people wouldn't even well people can't don't even know who won the semi-final and a lot of people don't know who won the final and um, when you talk about 400 meters in Barcelona, most people think of that semifinal.
0: Spoken at three different leadership events where that video is played. One, one was a large Catholic conference, probably 8,000 kids in the room. One was a conference for Syrian physicians whose work was overseas in the middle of a, of a civil war. And the third was this like, just beautiful leadership group in the Southeast part of our country. Three different groups, three different backgrounds, three different faith walks. All of them, though, having a presenter who used that video as an example, not only of courage, a family of continuing strong, finishing strong. But but I'm curious, in your own words, why do you think that video and that finish has had the resonance not only in 92 for those who saw it live, but for the rest of us decades later who were steer cheering?
1: Do you know something? You've kind of hit upon the answer already in your question. I think one of the things, and I've had these conversations with my wife uh, over the years, it resonates with a lot of people for so many different reasons. One of them is the fact that this young unknown person, because the world didn't know what I was capable of doing and what I was potentially going to to do. Um, But here was this Olympian from Great Britain, um who you know things are looking good and obviously this happened and he actually chose not to give up so there's that never give up tenacity right. kind of piece to it which is something that we all try and tell not just our kids and, and 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 advocate to students and other but it's something that we can all relate to in life because in our own ways we all have had uh you know a, a hamstring pull moment some a lot more serious than that maybe some not so serious but we've all had those moments and we'll continue to have those moments. Right. One of the other things that I think really uh, resonates with people is, and my wife pointed this out to me, it's the fact that it was my father. Had it been a fellow athlete, a coach, an official, it wouldn't have had the same effect, I think, on people as it did happen to be my father, because it was my father, Um, you know, my dad. The guy that pushed me, that supported me, that disciplined me, that guided me, Mm -hmm. that bankrolled me as a kid, you know, all of these things that that parents do. And there he is at at that time. And it was testimony to the kind of relationship that we had, regardless to that. People think that made our relationship. That was just a tip of the iceberg uh, representation of the relationship that we already had um so i think these are the some of the reasons why it hits so many people because it can hit people on so many levels you don't have to be an olympic level performer to relate to it you don't have to be a millionaire a billionaire you don't have to be of a certain age this for some reason resonates. and i have had over the years 30 years uh or plus now um 33, 33 years so much information from people. Asking me about that, writing to me about it, telling me how it's inspired them. I remember being asked to present some awards at a military event where, you know, former soldiers had lost limbs,
0: yeah.
1: uh, uh, you know, rep- you know, fighting for their country, and I got introduced as this Olympic hero, and I was presenting to a, a young uh soldier, say young, I think he was in his thirties, who lost both his arms and both his legs you know fighting for his country but did iron men mm-hmm. you know and i was presenting him and, and i had my speech written and they introduced me as this olympic hero and they showed my own. and i went up there I took my piece of paper out, and i actually said you know what I, I, I can't stand here accepting that i'm a hero i'm in front of heroes i was just a guy who pulled a muscle in a race at the end of the day and i ended up just speaking from the heart presenting this guy and this and that and and I remember sitting down on a table after the event and um, my wife's with me and we're sitting down on one of the big tables and we're all in our tuxedos and they've all got their, you know, official, you, you know, um, sort of uniforms and stuff on. And these guys are arguing, oh my God, what you did, you are a hero. You should, you know, I, I'm going, I'm not being funny, my friend, but you've got one arm, you've got no legs and you're calling me a hero. <laughs> Come on, let's put this into perspective. You know, I, and and it was just crazy how this whole process has, has just affected people in the ways that it has and uh, to this day um i still can't believe that people look at it in the way that they do it still shocks me 33 years later uh, 31 years later
0: i've seen the video 1700 times and every single time i cry man i i love my dad and uh, he was the guy who put his arm around me. And now I have the opportunity of putting my arm around him. So I think there's a little bit of that personal feel when I watch that video. But I, yeah. I love the way your father stiff arms, security in Spain and says, I'm getting to my son. No, Absolutely. Nobody, nothing will stop me. There's no. just brilliant. Absolutely. So, yeah, you're a hero for getting back up and hobbling. But, man, when I watch that dad come over to his boy, like it, it just grips me. Um,
1: Absolutely, and uh, now I've got children. I I see it also from a different side, and again, when you ask, you know, what do you know, you ask what what is it that that makes this such a, a you know a, 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 an experience or a situation that happened, you know, that, that that sort of resonates with people. I think also it resonates to fathers around the world.
0: Right.
1: It resonates to sons and daughters around the world, and also to mothers, you know, because it was a parent at the end of the day. So it resonates to parents, every parent can relate to in their own way.
0: Derek, how how did it change the relationship between you and your father?
1: It didn't, we already had that relationship. Um, You know, we had a very strong relationship, it didn't change the relationship. Um, We were always close. Uh, We were close after that. The only thing it did do is it, it made my dad and I spent a lot more time together on screen doing interviews <laughs> you know where really my dad was standing at the side off the screen all of a sudden we're both being you know asked uh, asked questions but it didn't change our relationship because we had that relationship before that that particular incident
0: you you lost your father in October uh, yeah so the pain is recent and 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 raw still when you think about your father's legacy what comes to mind
1: obviously that's um that's the, the the thing that immediately comes to mind um, uh, there is another legacy. And I kind of say this with a smile on my face. So my dad was in the meat trade and without going through the whole, whole, um, story, uh, background story, he was a specialist in meats products. So just like you have wine sommeliers that are expert on wines and can talk about the grapes and the flavorings and this and that. My dad had, uh, a, a similar ability with meat, whether it was how to cure it, how to season it, how to flavor it. And one of the legacies that my dad has left, and it wasn't his plan, um, a particular chicken organization asked him to come up with a new flavoring for their, you know, to add to their only products. Um, And he came up with this idea. I think it took two or three attempts and they took one of them on board. Um, So thank you very much. And they called it the Zinger. And that was KFZ Zinger Burger. So my dad invented the flavors for the KFZ Zinger Burger. And the one that you also, not big in this country, certainly in America, the McRib um, yes. from McDonald. that's also my dad's baby. Um, so I think they are two pretty big legacies that my dad left as well. So, so
0: for the Zinger lovers out there and the McRib lovers out there, absolutely, yeah, you are welcome.
1: You're welcome, absolutely, yeah.
0: <laughs> Derek, we, we could spend so much time talking about racing motorcycles, uh, eventually being told you are no longer going to be able to be an athlete and proving that physician wrong. Your children, your grandchildren, on and on and on from there. Um, my, my final question before we shift into the Live Inspired 7 is you, you've been speaking now around your country, around Europe and around the world. You've been writing books. You've been influencing through interviews and newsletters. Is there a favorite story after a speech? Is there a favorite letter that you received? I know they come in by the dozens. But is there one story in particular that moves you on how something that you saw as being a failure ended up afterwards deeply moving someone else in their journey?
1: Yeah, two very quickly, a young girl from America. Um, I remember I think her name was Lizzie Sowell. I hope I pronounced that correct. And she was possibly elementary school and she sent me a medal she struggled with reading and and spelling and she won a medal in her spelling test and she actually sent me the medal uh with a handwritten letter um that's one that stands out and again from the united states i remember receiving and we ended up having a a a, a video call um and she had lost her daughter in a car accident and and found some kind of comfort in what happened to me and this kind of almost justifies what I'm talking about I pulled a muscle in a race losing a child is something that's a lot bigger than me and I should be the one seeking solace in her not the other way around so there there are two that immediately come to mind but there are hundreds and hundreds um someone came up to me and said oh you're you know saw your dad's video for the first time and I have people who weren't even born when it happened coming up to me and saying things so yeah it's it's Truly humbling. And again, my wife will say, you know, we'll be at an event somewhere and people come up to me and she forgets it because I'm just the guy in the house that puts the trash out and, you know, cleans the cars and, you know, goes and fills them with gas when they're right out. And, and, and all of a sudden she, she forgets. She thinks, oh, my God, yes. You know, and, and it almost is like a little bit of a slap on the face of a reminder of what other people see in me uh, as opposed to what I see in me and what she sees in me.
0: We are going to make the final lap around the track together through the Live Inspired Seven. Derek Redman, the first question to you, my friend, is what's the most influential book? Best book you've ever read?
1: I'm going to be totally honest here. I, I'm i dyslexic and I don't read that many books. I keep on saying I'm going to get into um, audio books and I haven't, but the one of the last books i read and i'm going back a many many years ago was a book by uh, written by carl lewis um he, i don't know how many he's written but his first book um i read most of it because i have to read over three and three and four times so it takes me three four times longer um so to be honest with you his was one of the last books that i read that um that influenced me um i've read lots of articles around michael jordan because i'm a massive fan of his mindset.
0: And I had a friend named Tommy Spaulding who is a speaker and an author and dyslexic. And uh so for him, I think I asked him his favorite movie. So I'll I'll ask you the same question. What's the best movie you've ever seen?
1: Oh uh, best movie. Um so there's one with Denzel Washington called Remember the Titans. Love that film. And again it's more about what's his, his mindset. It's more about what he brings to the team and how he he and we're not just talking personalities here. We're talking racism we're talking a real taboo okay. subject and how we try to bring these 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 two separate races literally together so that's uh one of my uh one of my favorite uh all-time favorite films is um is remember the titans
0: what, what is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little boy growing up just north of london that you wish you possessed as brilliantly today
1: I want to say ignorance, but that's not necessarily the right way. And I mean it in the right way, because when you are younger and you're not as informed, you go about things thinking, well, I can do that. There's nothing to stop me. But the older you get, you understand the things that can stop you. And they're sometimes the little things that that, that eat away at you and talk to you. And then sometimes they're the things that are harder to ignore. So innocence, there's Mm -hmm. the the right word. I wish I still had a lot more of that innocence, but the older you get the more experienced you become the more experience you you have the more you know educated you become and sometimes that innocence is great and that's something that i wish i had again
0: if your home caught fire and your wife and four children and grandbabies are all out safely and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item
1: what's oh. the one
0: you come back outside with
1: Because of what's happened in the last few months to me, I think it would be something would sort of epitomise the memory of my dad. Um, You know, whether it be that would be a specific photo, photo album, uh, something along those uh, along those lines. I never will lose the memory of my dad, you know, since his passing, there's a few bits and pieces my mum has given me and I'd possibly grab something of his and just get it out of the house.
0: Derek, if you could sit on a gorgeous London day and have a a nice long conversation with anybody living or deceased, who would you like to be outside on a bench with?
1: There's a couple of people. For me, it would have to be someone like Michael Jordan. I really, really would like to sit down with a Michael Jordan and just understand What makes him tick? What makes him work the way that he worked? What makes him keep on going? Someone like uh, uh, a Muhammad Ali. I don't know. Someone like a Jeff Bezos as well. I I just want to get into these people's minds because, you know, as an athlete, I used to wonder what you get a talented group of athletes. What makes one of them consistently perform? Um, What's the
0: best advice that, any of those guys at that dinner with you or anyone else in your life has ever provided you. So the best advice you've ever received is?
1: The best advice I've ever received is whatever you are looking to achieve, whatever your dream, your aim, your goal is, the one thing that you have to do is, first of all, believe in your hearts of hearts that you can achieve it. Because if you don't believe that, it it will never happen. Uh, No matter how big or small it is, you've got to believe and whether you go beyond that, but whatever it is, you've got to believe that you can achieve it. Because um, okay. as I was once told, there's going to come a time uh, or you know, a, a period where on route to that goal, you're going to be challenged. Yes. Whether it's a sporting dream with injury, whether it's business problems, this and that. And you're going to face a lot of challenges. The one thing that will keep you going when you feel alone at some point is the fact that you know you can achieve it. And that might only be for a small reason, but it's enough of a a light in that tunnel to keep you inching, even if it's only by millimeters mm. towards that goal. Because if you believe in yourself, then other people will begin to believe in you and that's where you get out. But if you don't believe in it, how do you expect any other person to believe in you and, and help you towards that, you
0: know, towards that goal? So what advice would you give yourself at age 20?
1: Age 20, patience. I will, I still am to a certain degree, a very unpatient person. Um, And, you know, what I wanted to do in 10 days might actually take 10 years, you know, um, and you've got to give yourself that patience and actually don't beat yourself up about if it doesn't happen as quick as you think it's going to happen.
0: Derek Redmond, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read?
1: It'd be the guy that never, ever gave up. Hmm. Um, I think that would be uh, the one thing for me because success means different things to different people. And, you know, success isn't having your driveway full of supercars, isn't having a 30 bedroom house. It isn't having all the watches. They're all great, but you know, success can be really small things, having that family. Hmm. It could be surviving something, you know, it's all these small things, but with all of those things, as I said before, you're going to be challenged. And for me, it's it's always coming back. I was told I'd never compete for my country again. And three years later, I sent that same surgeon a photograph of me playing basketball for England, you know, and I almost represented my country in three sports. I won two other national titles in two other sports and I just don't give up no matter how big or how small the the task, the goal, the aim, the dream is. I just don't give up. So for me, it'd be nice to be known as the man that never, ever gave up.
0: My friends, you're listening to a conversation between John O'Leary and Derek Redman. He is reminding us of the power of believing in yourself, not giving up and finishing the race strong with those you love. I want to thank Derek Redman for the time today. And I want to thank each of you for tuning in. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today's your day. Live inspired. Well, my friends, if you enjoyed hearing how powerful the support of a loving parent can be, I think you're going to love also my conversation we had a couple of years back with Mary Morantz From a family of vloggers in rural West Virginia, Mary shares what it looks like to grow up in a deteriorating single-wide trailer. And more importantly, what it looked like to grow up with a father who would sacrifice everything, everything to ensure that his little girl had a bright future this conversation I just reminds you that regardless of where you come from, with the love of a family member, a friend, a particular a parent, we are reminded how firm the foundation is that in spite of the headwind we may face, that the best is yet to come and who embodies that more brilliantly, more beautifully than my friend. Her name is Mary Moran. to learn more about her conversation and what it means for you and me check it out right now at episode 288 or you can let your fingers do the walking for you and visit me right now online at john o'leary com forward slash podcast we'll have a link to mary's conversation in the show notes if you enjoyed this conversation with derek redmond as much as i enjoyed bringing it to you do me a favor subscribe. Make sure that you get these podcasts sent directly into your inbox. Tell your friends that you work with, that you worship with, that you work out with, that in a marketplace of negativity, you tune into the Live Inspired Podcast and it reminds you that life is not always easy. It's not even always fair, but it is good. The foundation is firm And with the loving help of a father coming out of the stands, the best is yet to come. We can become that kind of loving embodiment for others, my friends. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift. Finish strong and live inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at Keely Companies.